CNN White House reporter Jim, look at me, I'm Jim Acosta, has a new book out entitled, Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta, by Jim, look at me, I'm Jim Acosta, subtitled, Why You Should Look at Me, Because I'm Jim Acosta. The book details Acosta's struggle to cover the White House in such a way that everyone will look at him because he's Jim Acosta. Acosta writes of the terrifying moment when he was forced to fight off an attack from a 105-pound female White House aide who tried to wrestle the microphone from his hand while he was in the midst of shouting his personal opinions at the President of the United States. Acosta writes, quote, She came at me like a bat out of hell, and I realized at any moment I might lose my grip on the microphone so that the audience would no longer look at me, even though I was still Jim Acosta. Now, there are some, some I should add, who were not there in the thick of the battle, who say I should not have knocked this attacker away from me because she was only a woman. But some of these babes are fast, moving like a shark through the water or a torpedo or a girl. So at any moment, they knock you off center stage. I couldn't let that happen, unquote. In another section of the book, Acosta writes movingly of the threat Donald Trump poses to the free press, saying, quote, Donald Trump, Trump calls the press the enemy of the people. But really, when you think about it, who are the people that we should not be their enemies? Are they me, Jim Acosta? Are they even looking at me? And if not, why not? Do they not know who I am? Unquote. The answer to these and other questions are in the book, or in fact, in the subtitle of the book, which would save you a few bucks. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing it's a wonderful day. Hurrah, hooray. It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. A lot of conservatives, possibly even me, have been misusing the word absurd. And since it may be the most essential word of our era, we should get the meaning right. We sometimes say that labeling an Orthodox Jew tradcon like Ben Shapiro alt-right or white supremacist is absurd, or that calling the centrist gay libertarian Dave Rubin far-right is absurd. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> pardon me, the word absurd means utterly or obviously senseless, illogical, or untrue. And yes, in one sense, these labels fit that bill if their point were to communicate the truth. But in fact, these attacks are not senseless. They're not absurd. They're part of a strategy. The internet and social media have up till now democratized information, which in effect means they took information out of the monopoly of powerful corporate left-wing gatekeepers and made it possible for independent voices to be heard, some of those voices conservative. The left thought it could keep that under control by intimidating these speakers and their listeners with slurs like racist, sexist, Islamophobic, homophobic, all the rest. No one likes being called names and demonized, and if anyone fought back, they were called uncivil. This strategy largely worked. Right-wingers, especially right-wingers who wanted to keep their jobs or get elected in mixed districts, learned to watch their words and watch their steps. And then along came Donald Trump. Trump, who is rude and a bore and doesn't care what anybody calls him and can give just as good as he gets. And that was okay at first, because this is what the elites thought of Trump running for president. People think that Donald Trump is a clown. Do Donald, Donald Trump is a clown. I mean, does anybody seriously think that Donald Trump is serious about running for president? Donald Trump, you know, he's a clown. The likely moderator yeah. apparently, apparently believes that Donald Trump is a clown. Which Republican candidate has the best chance of winning the general election? Of the declared ones right now, Donald Trump. <laughs> Ruh-roh, Trump won. Never laugh at Ann Coulter. Now, 
people have the right to free speech. That's all well and good, but not if you're going to take the elite's power away. I mean, how the hell did that happen? It must have been Russia manipulating social media. It must have been fake news on social media. It must have been people suddenly liberated by Trump's bull in a China shop mentality to finally say what was really on their minds on social media. The elites can never let that happen again. Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, these are massive corporations who believe in the leftism that ultimately serves powerful people like them and their globalist vision, and it leaves the rest of us nothing but welfare and opiates. The left's real campaign slogan should be bug off and die, you deplorable little people. So, if social me media lets people speak and Trump frees them to speak what they're really thinking, and if in speaking they vote for Trump and Trump gets power, they've got to censor social media and get rid of Trump. Here's how to do it. First, push the idea that hate speech is not covered by First Amendment norms. Second, define hate as anything that opposes left-wing opinion. Third, keep moving left-wing opinion so that only the elites know what it is on any given day. Fourth, now you can define everyone who opposes your power as hateful, Fifth, start banning their voices as hate speech. They don't call Shapiro and Rubin alt-right because they think they're alt-right. They call them alt-right so that they can lump them in with the others and silence them and all the people like them so that they can defeat Donald Trump in 2020, so they can have their power back and the rest of us can bug off, live in meaningless ease on our guaranteed incomes, and die. I told you this was going to happen. I'm telling you it's happening. And yesterday's Twitter attack on Project Veritas was Orwellian, as as Orwellian a, an example as you could possibly get. We're going to have James O'Keefe from Project Veritas on to talk about it. First, we will talk about Bull and Branch. Uh, you don't need to spend a fortune to get the rest. You know, they always sell Bull and Branch. They always tell you you're going to get a good night's sleep. I have no idea whether you're going to get a good night's sleep at all because I never sleep. I never sleep. All I can tell you is while you're lying awake on Bowl and Branch sheets, you will be incredibly comfortable and you will love the way they look. What makes them unique is that each sheet is crafted from 100% organic cotton. That means Bowl and Branch sheets not only feel great, but they look great. And since Bowl and Branch sells exclusively online, you don't pay that expensive retail markup. That's half the price twice the quality. Good deal. Try them for 30 nights and see for yourself. If you're not impressed, return them for a full refund. Go to bowlandbranch.com today and you will get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets plus free shipping in the U.S. when you use the promo code CLAVEN. That's 50 bucks off plus free U.S. shipping right now at bowlandbranch.com. Spell it B-O-L-L -L and branch.com. Promo code CLAVEN. bowlandbranch.com. Promo code CLAVEN. Like I said, I don't sleep on them. I just lie awake and appreciate them. But uh, you can lie awake and ask yourself the big questions like, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So yesterday, Twitter suspended the account of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe's uh, great site that goes undercover and investigates the people that the mainstream media won't investigate. Uh, and they, they censored him. Well, have we got James? Bring that man on. Let's, let's, let's let him tell the story. O'Keefe, you got in trouble again. I told you to stay out of trouble. Well, I'm doing journalism, so that's a, a criminal <laughs> offense. Yeah, I'll say. Doing, yeah. So explain, I, I should, just so people know, uh, Project Veritas is an organization dedicated to investigating corruption, dishonesty, waste, and fraud in public and private institutions. Uh, and James is the author of American Pravda, My Fight for Truth in the Era of Fake News. Uh, tell us what happened. Oh, where do I begin? Um <laughs> A uh, whistleblower comes to us inside of a company called Pinterest, which is a big tech company. It's a $13 billion company who had a recent IPO. And this is a whistleblower. This is someone who 
was willing to lose his job. He knew the risks. He gave us secret documents. And since I'm on the Daily Wire, one of the pieces of information in this document, I have the document in front of me, uh, uh, internal employees at Pinterest were calling Ben Shapiro a white supremacist. And, <laughs> yeah, they, and, I was just talking put, about this, yeah. And they put <clears throat> Ben Shapiro, the words Ben space Shapiro space Islam or Muslim, any of those combination of words, on what they call an STL or a sensitive terms list. Mm. And he and he shared <clears throat> screenshots of, of employees working at high level in the company uh, talking about how they would censor any content mentioning Ben Shapiro. So there's this information. And there's also information that Live Action, the largest pro-life organization, the, the biggest pro-life media organization, they actually consider them to be pornography. Oh, and yeah. and, and also other websites, PJ Media, uh, Zero Hedge, all porn. So we reach out for Pinterest to com for comment on Monday afternoon and, and Pinterest mm -hmm. scrambles to try to cover this information up and removes live action from the porn domain block list before we publish the story. We publish the story. The story blows up, Drudge links to the video, and then Pinterest then places live action back onto the porn domain block list. And then after that happens, Pinterest just bans live action. Mm. And then what happens is YouTube, which Drudge has just linked to the video of, of the, all of these expose, uh, YouTube bans the video, claiming that we violated the privacy, a privacy violation of Pinterest. And then what happens is Twitter censors uh, us publishing the video. So YouTube bans the video. Uh, and then Pinterest informs this young man who blew the whistle that he's been placed on administrative leave. So they didn't actually fire him. They placed him on it. And I think the reason why they didn't fire him is because they know that they have a lawsuit on their hands yeah. if they fire him for blowing the whistle on what has occurred. So an extraordinary series of events. That, that is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing that social media is ganging up on you to keep you from exposing social media from ganging up on conservatives. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's George Orwell. It really is. They've, they've yeah. gone, they've lost, they've lost their minds, but really not. I mean, it's a strategy, right? They are trying to silence us before the 2020 election. They want conservatives. Well, this is the, this is the, his name is Eric Cochran. I mean, he's a hero. We just published an interview with him. He did go on the Tucker Carlson show last night. And what's extraordinary, you listen to this guy, Eric, is he says, I don't care about, he was making, he was making a, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year working. And he just, I gave it all up. Because he wants to draw out a dozen people like him to do what he did. And if you listen to Eric talk, Eric says, this is the watershed moment. He says, this is the moment. He says, it's all happening. I've, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've never had YouTube take down one of my videos. And, yeah. I, and I covertly film people. I, I leak documents. That's what investigative journalists do. But now what's happening is that the public, the, 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 the tech companies are, are putting down the gauntlet and saying, no, no. This is a bridge too far. You're 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 throwing the stone in Goliath's eye and, and it's hurting us too greatly. And they would never do this to The New York Times. They would never do this to The Washington. They, those guys publish secret documents all the time. Right. They publish secret documents into state secrets. They publish, I don't know, the documents on you and I. They've, but that, that, that's not what this is about. This is about putting the line in the sand. And this young man has made the extraordinary decision to give it all up, to basically ruin his career for a cause greater than himself. And, and I think that what's, what's gonna happen next 
is there's going to be a dozen people like him to blow the whistle. And I don't think Beck, big tech is going to be able to stop them all. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it, it, first of all, just to unpack it just a little bit, you, what you exposed was they were putting, you know, I mean, Ben Shapiro, but also Lila Rose and her fight against abortion. They put her on, a, on as a porn site. I mean, that's an amazing thing. So porn site legitimately banned from Pinterest and they put her on a porn site. You expose that. And they shut you down. I mean, this yes. is, an, this is yes. an amazing. So, so, <laughs> so <laughs> truth is, listen. Truth is stranger than fiction. If you if you wrote a, you're from Hollywood. If you wrote a screenplay about the the executive producer would throw it in the trash because that's too out. That's too ridiculous. That's too cliche. No, it's I'm I'm, I'm I know this sounds crazy, but it's all happening. Yeah, this is the moment in time. I'm not exaggerating. Right. Pinterest put pressure on Google, Pinterest put pressure on YouTube corporate and said, We're, this is too true. And the more, and then what, well, just like from that movie, The Insider, that's a metaphor for what's happening because this guy's an insider. When, when Al Pacino says, the more true it gets, the worse it gets. He sits, he talks, he courageously blows the whistle. We publish the information in a responsible way. I'm not an opinion guy, I'm not a pundit. Right. I just published facts that the public had a right to know. And I can't go to the New York Times, the Washington Post, because those guys hate my guts so much that they put their hatred and their passion for politics and party over the First Amendment. Right. And the only place I have to go is YouTube, and YouTube takes me down. And do you see those blue checkmark guys on Twitter giving a crap about this? No. Yeah. They say off with his head. The Intercept, which is the entire purpose of The Intercept, is to publish secret documents. Yeah. He's saying Facebook needs to ban O'Keefe. This is, and this, this is the this is the moment. And this all, is the moment in time. All they had to do, all they had to do was say, you know what? We were wrong. We shouldn't have done this. We won't do it anymore. That's all they had to do. They could they could have just changed the policy and let Lila Rose have a place on Pinterest. But instead, they go after you. It, it is incredible, and it is also incredible because it's happening all over, James. I mean, it's happening at very very big levels. What's what's amazing about this is these guys. I mean, look, you, you are a powerful company because of what you do, but you're not a massive corporation like these guys. I mean, these are massive corporations ganging up on an independent voice, which has which is putting forward provable facts. I mean, everything you had was on video. You have the guys showing it. You show the documents. It, it's an amazing thing. There's a corporation silencing an independent voice that's selling the truth. That's, a, that's the whole story. I mean, well, what Eric Cochran says in response to that is he says, hopefully it shakes people awake. I think yeah. it's a very powerful, it's like that righteous indignation that Andrew Breitbart, the title of his book, which itself was a quote from Ida Tarbell, the muckraker from the 1890s and 1900s. You're trying to shake people awake. And Andrew, I can't, I mean, seven years ago, when I did, when we did these stories, you'd have the blue check mark uh, mainstream journals, they'd talk about it. Yeah. But there isn't a whisper, there isn't a word said, uttered about the First Amendment. And what you begin to see is that these companies are not actually in, they have to choose between, it's like that meme where the guy, the, the guy is trying to figure out which red button to push and he's sweating <laughs> because they have to choose between the First Amendment principles that are supposedly sacrosanct and their political party Leninist allegiances. Yeah, buddy, I don't and think it, they're sweating anymore. I think they've made that choice. You know? They've already made that choice, but, yeah. but I think it's going to shake people awake. It's going to wake people up. Because fundamentally, the values that we all share as American, this is an American value. This is yeah. not a right left thing. This is a fundamental, ver we, we fundamentally share that, that civic duty to publish information for the public's right to know so that citizens can make informed decisions to elect the representatives. And if journalists and the fourth estate are going to decide 
we we want to protect the big corporations who censor the First Amendment. Now this is the moment. This is the event horizon yeah. that we have passed. And I'm very inspired by what Eric has done. Hey, uh, O'Keefe, I'm proud of you, brother. You're doing a great job. Thank you for coming on and talking about it. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you again. You know, if you guys and if you think, listen, if you think this uh, stops. Oh, I got to do a, another ad. Let me let me get back to this in just a second. I want to talk about Big Token. It's a new app that lets you share data about yourself, your interests and habits, and then get paid for it, which is great. First of all, it's addictive. It's really fun to play with. I've been playing with it. But right now, you're already sharing an enormous amount of information with tech companies, and they make money off it, right? So should you. That's where Big Token comes in. Here's how it works. First, you download the app. You sign up for a free Big Token account. Next, complete actions to earn points. And actions are things like answering surveys, checking into locations, connecting your social accounts, and more. And then you can redeem those points for rewards, such as cash. I would end there, but you could also get gift cards or donate your earnings to charity. But I want to repeat cash. You can choose what data you share with Big Token and then get paid for it. And you can also get more points for referring friends and family. Your data is always secure in Big Token. If you want to start, start earning money for your data, go to the App Store or Google Play. Search for Big Token, B-I-G-T-O-K-E-N. It's all one word. Download the app and sign up. Make sure to use my referral code, Claven. Again, search Big Token in the App Store or Google Play. Download the app and use my referral code, Claven, to sign up, claim your data, and get paid. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sure, Big Token. Everyone knows how to spell that. But what about Claven? K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's. No E's in Claven. If you don't think this is going to go on at the absolute highest level, in other words, they're silencing James O'Keefe, but they want to silence anyone who's exposing the truth, right? I mean, James, you know, I'm not going to call him a little guy because I think he's got a, a good operation going, but it's an indie operation. So he is a little guy in that sense versus these tremendous, and Google is a tremendous corporation, Google, YouTube, to, you know, Twitter. These are big, big people stomping on him. The, um, the New York Times, a former newspaper, runs a story that it was given to them by what they call anxious CIA agents. I would have used the word panicked CIA agents. Here, here's from the New York Times. Remember, John Durham is the uh, U.S. attorney who William Barr has sent to investigate the investigation, the eye of eye, the investigation of the investigation of how they started spying on Donald Trump. Here's the New York Times story. Justice Department officials intend to interview senior CIA officers as they review the Russia investigation, according to people briefed on the matter, indicating they are focused partly on the intelligence agency's most explosive conclusion about the 2016 election that Vladimir Putin of Russia intervened to benefit Donald Trump. The interview plans are the latest sign the Justice Department will take a critical look at the CIA's work on Russia's election interference. Investigators want to talk with at least one senior counterintelligence uh, official and a senior CIA analyst, the people said. Both of officials were involved in the agency's work on understanding the Russian campaign to sabotage the election in 2016. While the Justice Department review is not a criminal inquiry, it has provoked anxiety. I would have used the word panic and terror, but has provoked anxiety in the ranks of the CIA, according to former officials. Senior agency officials have questioned why the CIA's analytical work should be subjected to a federal prosecutor's scrutiny. They're spying, right, on an opposition campaign, the opposition's campaign. Why should be subject to scrutiny? So the New York Times is being sympathetic. But if you want to see something truly amazing, and I know I have to show it to you because it was on CNN, so nobody saw it. 
here's CNN's law and justice analyst, okay? Let me see. His name is Shimon Prakupes. Don Lemon asks him about this investigation. Listen, this, <laughs> this is on a news agency, right? This is on a place where there are supposedly journalists in the room. Listen to what his answer is about this. You know this report in the New York yeah. Times that he mentioned that the Justice Department is now questioning CIA officers as they review this Russia investigation, which is... It's troubling because, you know, it's not... You don't do this. The CIA kind of operates in their own world. Um, and for the Department of Justice to start begin questioning uh, CIA agents, people who work there... You know, for me, I think what all of this comes down to is the former CIA director, John Brennan. And I know the president obviously has been very unhappy with the way John Brennan has behaved since he left office. Uh, and so I think it goes all back to that, I, that he's very concerned about some of the information and how some of the information that the CIA had really may not have been stood up. They couldn't really ver verify a lot of the information. And the CIA, certainly John Brennan, was sounding a lot of alarms to members of Congress saying something's going on here. I know he was talking to people at the FBI at the time, concerned that something was going on. But what we're seeing from the attorney general uh, right now is that he's saying, well, you know, they were acting on a lot of information that he's concerned was not verified. The guy on CNN says, you don't investigate the CIA. The CIA lives in its own world. I mean, that, it, those are the words that just came out of his mouth. I'm not even making it up, right? The CIA lives in its own world. These are journalists. These are journalists. The CIA lives in its own world. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I played that uh, scene from Three Days of the Condor where CIA agent, renegade CIA agent Robert Redford uh, goes to the New York Times at the end and says, I've exposed you. I've sent the information to of the evil stuff you're doing to the New York Times. And the evil CIA head says, what if they don't print it? He says, they'll print it. You know, <laughs> they have the heroic shot of the truck coming out with his New York Times in the back of it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now they're saying, no, 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 don't print that. That print that. That makes Obama look bad and it makes Donald Trump look put upon. You know, it is, it's an amazing, amazing reversal. I mean, when James said they have to choose, they have to choose which red button to push First Amendment or their leftist uh, sympathies, they chose already. I mean, I talked about that earlier in the week about the New York Times has already said they think corporations should be censored as long as it's not them, as long as it's not what they determine is a journalistic corporation. And the thing about this is I talk about this as a strategy and it is a strategy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a conspiracy. OK, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody's gotten together and they're all huddled together and they're saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move the definition of hate. Every day there's going to be a new definition of hate. First, we're going to say it's, oh, if you don't like gay people, uh, that's a that's a problem. Wait, wait. Obama can't say yet that he uh, is in favor of gay marriage. So it's not hate yet. <clears throat> but the minute Obama says he's in favor of gay marriage, suddenly it's hate to be opposed to that. <clears throat> oh, now it, it's hate if you don't let a man into the girl's bathroom in your elementary school. And now it's hate if you won't admit that the man is a woman and he can't play uh, sports with women. You know, it's the, the idea of hatred moves every single day. The left gets caught in it themselves. But the important point is, is that it's always defined by the elites. It's always defined by the people who have the power so they can keep the power. And it's always to exclude the people in the Midwest, those deplorables in the Midwest. is what makes them deplorable is that they don't know what the new hate is. And so they don't know when they're being hateful. But they don't have to get together and plan that out. It's not like that. It is something that is naturally happening on their, in their minds because they only know each other. They never talk to the rest of us. 
they don't know what Ben is saying. They just know he's a powerful conservative voice. You know, they're not listening to him and thinking, they're not reading his book and thinking, hmm, you know, good point. Uh, you know, it's interesting there. Disagree with him here. Here he hasn't got this right. You know, they're not doing that. They just know he's the bad guy and he's got a voice and he's got to be shut down. Speaking of Don Lemon, or what does Tucker call him now? He calls him Don Lemone. When I first heard him doing that, I thought, have I been getting this wrong all this time? Don Lemon is sitting with, you know, uh, Jim, look at me, I'm Jim Acosta, right? Acosta selling his new book, Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta, by Look at Me, uh, I'm Jim Acosta. And they're talking about whether or not they're biased and whether or not they hate Donald Trump. Now, this is a station, a cable news network that sold this Russian conspiracy. And now the bottom has dropped out of their ratings because people went like, oh, nothing they were saying is true. All that banana is an apple. Uh, suddenly the apple is not a banana. What well, you know, whatever it was, it's suddenly not true. Here, you, go, you know, they use the term old white guys to mean entrenched, powerful people. If you want to see two entrenched people, you know, you can almost smell their cologne, these two guys. It, you don't have to be white and you don't have to be old to be entrenched and powerful because they know that they're not going to get fired. Here they are talking to one another about how fair they've been. For all those people who say, oh, do you know, the, the, the press, CNN hates Trump and the CNN is, uh, you know, uh, loves the Democrats. I watched Manu Raju with Nancy Pelosi, who yeah. clearly did not want to answer Manu's questions today, right. even in her body language. And you know what? He persisted and he asked her the tough questions anyway. So of anyone, a Democrat or Republican, regardless of who it is, if you hold a position of power, we, the journalists at CNN, are going to question you about it, whether you like it or not. That's right. We're here to hold their feet to the fire. And just because we are pro-truth doesn't mean that we are anti-Trump. And, you know, as I write throughout this book and I try to close it out on a, on a hopeful note, we are not the enemy of the people. We are defenders of the people. And we want to defend the people because we're devoted to the people. You and I, Don, uh, our, our families, our parents, our kids, uh, our loved ones, we all think about all of those folks when we come into the office and do this job on a daily basis. Uh, we're not here to spin things or, uh, you know, color things a certain way. We're here to give the people reliable, accurate information on a daily basis. That's why we all come into work every day. That's it's beautiful. It's, I mean, you could you could put that in a comedy show, a situation comedy, because they don't know. They don't know that they're talking crap. They don't. I really believe that they think, no, no, no. <clears throat> you know, Acosta has essentially said that they have to be uh, biased to cover Trump properly because Trump is so bad. But he doesn't hate Trump. You know, it's, that's not bias. That's just the truth. They, they now think their opinions are the truth. So, you know, when they call Lila Rose porn, it, it, they they kind of think, well, that's kind of what it is to them because the right to kill their children, the right to stick a scissors in a baby's head and suck out its brains is s such an important thing. It's it's not that's not killing somebody. That's not killing a baby. That's just women's rights, you know. So it is it is porn to them. I know if we're not allowed to hear from the uh, from Lila Rose, let's at least hear from the babies of Planned Parenthood. Come back here. You're not a human being. I am. I am a human being. For crying out loud, look at me. No one can see you. Hold still, you piece of tissue, you. Help! Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that was Jeremy Boring's finest moment, as far as I'm concerned, uh, playing the baby. Um... Here's and here's the left's response to that. Don't speak. Please don't speak. Please don't speak. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, 
The most famous scene in 1984 is the scene uh, when they torture Winston Smith, <clears throat> not to convince him that two and two is four, not to convince him that two and two is five, to convince him that two and two is whatever the party says it is. Hate is whatever the party thinks it is, because hate is whatever they want to ban. And hate right now is you and me. It's us. And it's going to be that way at least until the 2020 election. And if we lose the 2020 election, who knows how long that's going to go on. We've got a great guest, a really important guest coming up, uh, Jesse Morton, uh, who wrote an amazing article uh, in the Wall Street Journal called I Invented the Jihad Journal. But i got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to dailywire.com and subscribe. And then you can. And, you know, we were talking about this on Backstage yesterday. When you subscribe, you protect us from these people. You know, when we, when our sponsors uh, can't get chased off, when we know we've got your support, that's how we live. So please subscribe. It's 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks for the year. We give you all kinds of things, not just the leftist year's Tumblr. You get to be in the mailbag, get to ask questions during backstage. It is a good, solid subscription, which gives you a lot of goodies, but it also protects our voices and keeps us on the air. Come over to dailywire.com. Jesse Morton is a former jihadist, and he is now co-founder of Parallel Networks, an organization combating hate and extremism, and special advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project. I wanted to bring him in because I wanted to talk about what real hate looks like. It doesn't look like, Ben. Uh, Jesse, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I thought your article in the Wall Street Journal, I invented the Jihad Journal, uh, was shocking and uh, just an amazing piece. Uh, really good job. Uh, could you, could you start by explaining uh, how you became radicalized in the first place? So I was a young individual who was confused. I grew up uh, exposed to a very countercultural uh, perspective. My father was sort of a beatnik that had moved us to a commune. I grew up with uh, Bob Dylan in the 1960s, uh, countercultural uh, influences. And then I ran away uh, at the age of 16 because my mother's side of the family was very physically abusive. So I was sort of traumatized when I ran away at 16 to get away from home abuse, gravitated towards actually traveling with the Grateful Dead, and became a very far leftist anarchist before converting to Islam, having found the autobiography of Malcolm X during a few-day stint in jail in State College, Pennsylvania. Um, I became a Muslim who followed Malcolm X more than I followed the actual interpretation of the Prophet Muhammad, gravitated towards a political interpretation of the religion and radical revolutionary interpretation of the religion almost from the beginning. I was taught by a Moroccan uh, veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad in uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, and taught a millenarian uh, perspective of the religion that the end times was near, that the believers, the Muslims, were in a perpetual war against the non-believers, predominantly the great Satan, that is the United States. Because I felt like my society had not bailed me out of the abuse and because I had never developed the skills it took to address the underlying traumas that got me radicalized first in sort of tuning in and dropping out and then secondarily in a fundamentalist interpretation of the Islamic religion, um, I uh, adopted a very, very serious view that became uh, more and more sympathetic to Osama bin Laden and his adherents in al-Qaeda um, over time. So when 9-11 happened, I actually was uh, inclined to support the terrorists and to go against my own country, feeling that it had abandoned me and betrayed me. Wow, that's an, ama that's an amazing story. Uh, now, talk about that. You invented this thing called the Jihad Journal, which was actually uh, an innovative attempt to spread the jihad. 
Yes, it was. We were very prominent. I ran an organization, so I graduated through the ranks. Um, I actually was getting a master's degree at Columbia University while I was a propagandist setting the template upon which a large portion of online radicalization ensued. My organization, Revolution Muslim, located in New York City, uh, was responsible for 15 terrorist plots or connected to 15 terrorist plots in the end. We ran until 2011 when, Obama, uh, when Osama was killed in Abbottabad. And basically what we did was we realized very quickly that as the threat uh, we perceived was not so much from people that were trained abroad by al-Qaeda, but one that was homegrown. The domestic lone wolf attack was what we were beginning to be more concerned with. And the leadership in al-Qaeda was basically saying that what we should do is project the message, their message, through social media in particular. What we did was rather than just convey their message, we conveyed it in an American way. It almost was al-Qaeda on Madison Avenue, if you will. And one of the ways that we were most innovative was in conjunction with other prominent propagandists such as Samir Khan and Anwar al-Awlaki, two American individuals that were later killed in a drone strike in Yemen after joining al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. We started an English-language online e-scene that was very, very glossy, uh, full of uh, very good uh, graphic design. I wrote the lead article for the first issue, and we collaborated on making it appeal to the American or the Western mindset. Unfortunately, I've changed my beliefs now, but that template went on after my organization threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad. That template was launched by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as its own outlet called Inspire. Uh, and Inspire had an article in it that was called How to Bake a Bomb in Mom's Kitchen. That's the recipe that's been utilized in innumerable texts thereafter. And the most successful example of that uh, was the Boston Marathon bombers, who in 2013, while I was already incarcerated and was changing my ways, I had to see the consequences of that recipe come to fruition when the Zarnayev brothers uh, killed two and injured hundreds more at the Boston Marathon finish line. Since that day, and uh, you know, before that, but particularly that day, sets forth a motion of me trying to make amends for the damage that I have caused. And now I work, interestingly enough, alongside of the director of intelligence of the NYPD that used to monitor me for several years of my life, and we work to combat the hate and extremism that I once espoused. Well, let me let me go back for just a minute to the Jihad Journal. When you were, were you when you were trying to incite people to make lone wolf attacks, what kinds of things did you tell them? How do you, how do you inspire someone to do that? Well, I mean, it's a combination of mixing the theological or the religious and the fundamentalist religious interpretations with the political. So a lot of what you see in the language of ISIS and al-Qaeda is not strictly religious. It is religion, it's a political grievance, and it's a revolutionary political grievance. It's almost like taking, you know, far leftism and replicating it in a manner where it doesn't call for a socialist utopia. What it calls for is a transnational caliphate that is a utopia from the past that never actually existed. And so when you can transform religious rhetoric into idealistic uh, narratives about current events and the great Satan and the American imperialist in the Middle East, what you can do is you can mobilize people to go against their own society. We're talking predominantly, you know, second, third generation um, uh, Muslims from immigrant countries where their parents came here and they are, grew up here, they're totally uh, enmeshed in the American society, but for whatever reason they feel like they're drawn to an identity from their, you know, from their ethnic background. Or you're talking converts who tend to be the most zealous, but also misinformed. So it's really not so much a religious argument, but there's a very crafty way which the propagandists can make it seem like it's spiritual and religious because it's a comprehensive worldview and a comprehensive culture. And for those that are most susceptible to radical ideas, they love to see the world in a black and white worldview. And so we use three primary principles that take a long time to go through in suggesting first 
that God is the only one that can provide legislation. So democracy, uh, the concept of man-made legislation, is actually a form of idolatry. Mm. And then there's this idea that you have to hate and reject everyone that practices any form of legislation other than the one that, quote-unquote, God has revealed to Muhammad in the Qur'an and in the narrations attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. And then there's this idea that when you can synthesize the two of them, you're actually practicing monotheism in its complete form. And so a Muslim that doesn't believe in the Islamic State is not actually a Muslim at all. So not only are you hating the non-believer, you're also hating the believers that disagree with you. So basically it's just a a global hate movement that's dedicated towards reestablishing some pristine past that never actually existed. And, and what, Long story short. When you were arrested, what, what were you charged with? So I had threatened the writer. I had a cohort. His name was Zachary Chesser. He was a kid from an affluent background in Fairfax County, Virginia, radicalized in like six months through direct contact with Anwar Aldegi, who was a very prominent preacher that right. still is connected to most terrorist attacks we see today. And the South Park writers said that they were going to portray the Prophet Muhammad in a bear costume. Uh, we uh, issued a death threat against the South Park writers because we knew that it would create the kind of publicity we needed to get coverage in the mainstream press, but a small segment of those that witnessed that coverage would adhere to our views. It was basically free marketing. And in the process of trying to exploit that situation, we clearly entered the realm of uh, illegal speech. So what was radical revolutionary speech where we knew we were consciously walking up to the line of the First Amendment, putting our middle fingers in the air, so to say, and then carefully trekking back. We had gotten away with that for many years. The South Park threat crossed that threshold. I knew that it did. I fled to Morocco, and it was there that I was extracted from the movement, and suddenly the Arab Spring broke out, and I had exposure to Arab millennial youth, found that they really desired a lot of the things I had taken for granted, and then you know went to a series of processes where um, we started to sort of reverse course. Uh, I was arrested for inciting the murder of the South Park creators and conspiring in the production of Inspire magazine with Samir Khan and Anwar Aldegi, the magazine that went on to birth. Uh, ISIS's own English language iterations, Dabit and Gurmia, which have been calling not just for the pipe bomb attacks, but now for mowing people down in the streets. Amazing. So tell me now, what, what are we doing now? So you, you've changed, you're working with the, the police who uh, came after you. Uh, how, how are you, what, what is the journal you're, do, you're working on now? So we are and starting a, an organization called Parallel Networks. Parallel Networks is basically believing that rather than um, uh, as you suggest, outlawing speech, we should develop networks that rival in size and scope the networks that we believe to be extremist, jihadists being a clear-cut example of them, that only networks can battle networks. And so we're formulating a totter of people that have left extremist movements. We have an organization and a website called lightuponlight.online. It has a 24-7 call-in number. We can provide support to individuals that want to leave movements. We publish counter-speech. And one of the most interesting things that we recently did was we published a replication of the English language jihadi magazines I started. That's where the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal comes from. It looks exactly like ISIS's own production. We spent 10 days in the secret chat rooms of ISIS adherents, letting them know that a new magazine was coming to the point where they they were promoting our magazine for us. And so that when we launched that op-ed, the magazine product that we created was being disseminated in, 
without any knowledge of ISIS supporters. So now we're picking them apart inside of their own communities in encrypted platforms. They've migrated away from Facebook. They've migrated away from Twitter. Now they're on an application called Telegram, and we're in there dissecting that movement, trying to marginalize the voices in that movement that are promoting ISIS. So this is one of the things we do. We provide counsel and support to individuals that are coming home with terrorism-related offenses to protect them from society. Um, we do an array of things, go around and speak about my experiences, my experiences with the NYPD uh, Director of Intelligence and uh, Officer Mitch Silver that now works with me, share our stories, train individuals that might be responsible for thwarting attempts at terrorist attacks, get a better understanding of this phenomenon. But most importantly, we promote dialogue and engagement rather than polarization and hate um, and hatred of the other. So we're, we're, we're only a year and a couple months old. We're developing rapidly. We're very happy with what things are moving forward. We have a great uh, support system and counter-extremism project, which works diligently to make sure that Facebook is held accountable for its negligence in removing extremist content, that Twitter is held accountable, and social media platforms are held accountable for their removing uh, uh, particular levels of speech. We come in and we clear up the process by providing this, the, the services on the ground that can help individuals change and that can and combat these networks with other networks that rival them in size and scope, but that are built on, you know, pro-democratic, post-enlightenment interpretations of religion uh, that are that are very effective in pulling people out of their support for groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. Where where can people find out more about you, Jesse? You have a website or something? Uh, Light Upon Light Down Online is our core hub, or pnetworks.org is where we house our marketing and our and our and our, and our main organization. But our activity is hosted on Light Upon Light Down Online. Uh, it's a website where we have an array of programs and initiatives, and they can contact us there. We'll be glad to answer any questions that they have or uh, or provide consultation and any needs that uh, services they might desire. Jesse Morton, thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I do appreciate you having me. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Speech combating speech. And, you know, if you can't tell the difference between a guy telling people to kill people and Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, if you can't tell the difference between what hate really sounds like, you know, to the point that they're threatening people's lives and people who are supporting the Constitution and want people to be free and want babies not to be killed, if you can't tell that difference, you have lost the plot of America. You have lost the plot of the West. You've lost the plot of freedom. They mean to do it. The silencing people is just, just makes them stronger. I loved that line about uh, battling networks with networks. Final reflection. Uh, recently, I finished the third um, Another Kingdom, the, fi the final book in the trilogy of Another Kingdom. It's been a huge experience for me. I mean, uh, it's three years. It's essentially a thousand-page novel uh, that took me three years to write. Um, it's probably the, the last novel I'll ever write, uh, or at least the last serious um, prose fiction undertaking. Uh, I think um, I have another book I want, another nonfiction book I want to write. Um, but uh, it really has been a huge, huge deal for me. And um, you know, obviously, we're going to start to uh, turn it into a podcast. Uh, and yes, yes, we'll let Michael Knowles read it again. But I got this letter that I just want to share with you from a lady named Elisa, uh, who uh, was in the a tropical storm uh, Harvey uh, in southeast Texas. Uh, and she says, our house got 17 inches of water. My husband, two sons, a two-year-old and a one-month-old. And I were trapped in an upstairs room for three days. Uh, we were displaced for months. And while we were better off than many of our neighbors, it wasn't easy to help our tiny children cope with such a major upheaval while still recovering from childbirth. 
She says, it sounds silly to call what happened to me postpartum depression, uh, but that was a major component of my mental state after the flood. Whatever the cause, I was in bad emotional shape. I didn't have anyone to talk to, wasn't dealing with as much or more than I was. Uh, and those I did talk to urged me to get medicated, which wasn't the path I wanted to take. My relationships deteriorated, and I'm ashamed to say I blame God for inflicting this on our family during what should have been such a happy time. Shortly before we were able to move back into our house, I started listening to the Another Kingdom podcast. I'm a fantasy fairy tale junkie. I'd been intrigued by the premise, but I'd been too distracted to check it out. Five minutes into the first episode, I was hooked, and it really changed things for me. I would listen while pushing my kids around in the stroller, giving all three of us a few moments of peace. I would pop my headphones in and listen to an episode as I scrubbed drywall dust off every surface of our house. During a time when there seemed to be precious little to look forward to in our daily lives, Another Kingdom gave me a reason to look forward to Friday. I identify with Austin Lively in multiple ways, and his journey helped me remember who I was and what was important while I figuratively and literally put my house back in order. I was listening to your interview with Ben about the books, and when you said the plot for Another Ki Kingdom dropped into your head fully formed, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm conceited enough to believe that one of the reasons God inspired you to write this story is because he knew I and others like me needed to, to hear it. As an aspiring writer, I want nothing more than to bring people closer to God through my writing, and Another Kingdom showed me that I can do so while telling a good story. So thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being receptive to the Spirit of the Lord as you wrote the story. I'm so looking forward to season three, and I've managed to convince my husband to read the first book. Now, he's a fan, too. Again, thank you so much for writing Another Kingdom. Let wisdom reign. Um, she also sent me a, a follow-up email saying, don't tell Knowles, but he did a great job. So we won't tell him, but he did do a great job. Uh, you know, I just, I just want to tell you that when I wrote this book, this book did drop into my head. I did feel almost ordered to write it. I certainly felt ordered to turn it into a podcast, which is not my way. I like to write things and send them off to publishers and let them deal with that. The fact that I had to do this with me and Knowles had to do this together. And then we got help from all our friends here at the, the Daily Wire uh, to put it together. Uh, but the fact that we sort of did it ourselves to begin with uh, was goes kind of against my grain. I'm not, not an organizer. I'm not somebody who, I'm a writer. I stay in a room by myself and write things. Uh, but I did it. I remember specifically a day when I went out in prayer and I was praying and I said to God, I didn't want to do this. I don't think it's going to work. I hear you telling me to do it, so I'm going to do it, but it's on you because I think it's going to be a terrible, terrible uh, mess, and it's just going to go out there and disappear without a trace. So if it works, you get all the credit, uh, and if it doesn't work, I, I don't want to hear about it because I didn't want to do it in the first place. Well, it has worked tremendously well, uh, which should be a lesson to me, I hope, and possibly a lesson for us all. However, now... The fun is over. I have to plunge you into the Clavenless weekend, so you're doomed. But if you survive, I will be back here on Monday. I will look forward to talking to you then. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Wall Show today, Bernie Sanders says that uh, people would be delighted to pay more in taxes. I think that uh, poor Bernie is a bit confused, as, as usual. He seems to be confused a lot these days. 
Also, uh, we'll talk about the ways that feminism has backfired and harmed women. And related to that, we'll discuss the latest feminist outrage surrounding the U.S. women's soccer team. Apparently, uh, in, in case you didn't know, it is sexist to criticize female athletes. For any, you can't, for any reason, you can't criticize them. Uh, so we'll discuss that and other topics today on The Matt Walsh Show.